you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 62 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you. And last week, you will recall, we had a really interesting discussion with Helen Dixon Mm. shortly before she leaves her role as Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, what a body of work she leaves behind her and we wish her well. I think she's gone off to a new gig in Comreg, so no doubt she'll have a a big impact there. But that was a really good interview. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the controversial Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy Act with well-known Belfast human rights solicitor Dara Macken. This piece of legislation is coming under the cosh big time. Nobody is in favour of it in the North, I believe. Mm. And the Irish government has taken an action against it in Europe. Well, it certainly seems that the primary purpose of the Act is to protect British, British uh, soldiers, soldiers Tory government. Um, who, who might be prosecuted for their actions during the Troubles. And the British government is clearly trying to put, to, 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 to put a lid on that. Well, Dara and his colleagues in Phoenix Law do such incredible work. I am really looking forward to this interview. Well, first, we're going to take a look at three cases you have identified from the Decisis website. In the first case, a company was being wound up and was the owner of 37, 37 no less, aircraft worth $2 billion. Oh, yeah. my God. The company was ultimately Russian-owned and another company within the same group claimed to have a pledge agreement concerning these aircraft. The court was asked to determine whether the pledge agreement was valid or void. This is the case of INRE GTLK Europe DAC Moroni versus Joint Stock Company State Transport Leasing Company. And it's a decision That's of Mr. J- <laughs> Absolutely. And it is a decision of Mr. Justice Mulcahy in the High Court. Yeah. So, as you said, it's a company in liquidation, owner of these very valuable um, aircraft. And, you know, when a company is in liquidation, obviously the people who are entitled to the assets of the company are the creditors. And what transpired here was these pledge agreements came to light. And the owners of the pledge agreement, a, a connected company, as far as I understand, wanted to claim ownership of the, the aircraft, with, with the result being that the creditors wouldn't be able to access them to defray their debts or their, the debts of the company. And so but because it was a Russian company, there was a suggestion that the Irish courts might not have jurisdiction to determine the enforceability of the agreements. And it's just Ms. Mulcahy was satisfied they did have the authority. He also noted they hadn't been registered as a charge as was required by legislation, and that makes them void uh, of themselves. They also hadn't been authorised in accordance with the company's shareholders' agreement, and they effectively amounted to a fraudulent transfer under the, as you all know, Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Act yes, of two thousand and nine. As, as, as I know, Mark, absolutely. as you know exactly. And um, and if if there's a, a conveyance of property with the intention of hindering creditors, then that's also void. Okay, so enough. so yeah. those those pledge agreements fell away. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. Next to the case of a medical practitioner who had been accused of rape, and this was subject to ongoing investigations, very serious charge. The Medical Council sought to suspend him from practice, and this obviously brings into question the presumption of innocence, but also the protection of the public. It's a very serious charge. So the High Court had to marry these two issues, and how did it go about doing that, Mark? 
Yeah, well, the, the case is anonymized, obviously. It's called just simply the Medical Council versus a Medical Practitioner. It's a decision of Mr. Justice Michal O'Higgins. And so the Medical Council, clearly their primary role is to protect the public from members of their, their organization. That's the purpose of, of professional regulation. When somebody is subject of a serious uh, criminal allegation, obviously it's a matter that their professional body may want to take into account. But what they noted here was that this particular person, he, his income would suffer, his family would suffer. And so he tried to argue against suspension pending the completion of the Garda investigation. And they took the view that if he were properly chaperoned when uh, dealing with female um, patients, that that would be, well, that's one of a number of measures that were put in place in order to allow him to continue in practice. So he was allowed to continue in practice. He was allowed to continue wow. in practice, providing that he wasn't alone Despite with the female Despite the fact patient. that, I mean, the charge is as serious yeah, well, as you can one, get, really. One of the issues here was that there wasn't proper in information before the court as to the stage of the guard okay. investigation. So obviously they didn't know. All right, very, very well explained, Mark. Okay. So finally tonight, we look at a case where borrowers sought to sue the valuer who had valued land. The claim was brought out of time. Here we go. So they tried to argue that there had been a fraudulent concealment by the defendant. Did that get over the delay issue, Mark? It, uh, well, this is the case of McDonough and Ulster <laughs> Bank in Ireland. And um, when there is a case that is statute barred, one of the ways that you can get over the limitation period issue is if there has been fraudulent concealment by the defendant in, in the sense of either there being a fraud full stop or where the defendant has concealed something relating to the case that prevents you bringing the action. And in this case, the alleged fraudulent concealment Didn't fell exist. a long way sh short. Um, and we should say they, that this is a judgment of Mr. Justice Charles Meenan in the Court of Appeal. Yeah. Okay, right. back shortly with Solicitor Dara Macken. Silence in the Fifth Court. So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Dara Macken, a Nury man who is now a well-known human rights lawyer, worked for a while with KRW solicitors, and then I think in, was it 2019, 2020, set up Phoenix Law? 2018. 2018, sorry, 2018. Yeah. Um, who have been in a number of very high-profile, I suppose you could call them legacy cases, including the Bally Murphy inquests and various other cases like that. He's in Dublin at the moment for the Stardust inquests, but because these are ongoing and because I have an involvement, we won't be discussing those today. We're here really to discuss the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy Act 2023, which is extremely controversial. But Dara, can we start by just asking you a little bit of personal background? What led you to become a solicitor in the first place? Were you always interested in law? Yeah, I think um, anybody who, who probably knows me and uh, probably isn't surprised that it turned out um spend my life arguing uh, growing up in school. I always kind of had uh, maybe a direction towards debating and things like that. However... I grew up in a house full of teachers. My mother, my father, and my sister are all teachers. So I decided from quite early on, I definitely was not going to be a teacher. Sure. I had these great ideas at 16 and 17 that I'd opened up my own clothes shop. But as many can see from my own dress sense, that unfortunately didn't work out the way I intended either. So I began law um, initially with this idea that I would have been a, a grandiose commercial lawyer, unfortunately. But when I began my work experience with um, KRW Law in Belfast, I was immersed into the criminal law profession quite early on. And the one thing that just struck me immediately was that I, I liked the idea of helping people. I liked the idea of working with people. And in particular, I liked the idea of the kind of David versus Goliath. 
acting for the underdog. And within no time at all, I was naturally driven towards human rights. And unfortunately, um, where I grew up in Uri and South Armagh in particular, it was surrounded by human rights breaches, you know, in every corner. You can't go past, unfortunately, without seeing some plaque to some historic wrong. And for those reasons, I ended up doing uh, not just human rights, but then moving towards some of the legacy uh, stuff uh, in the later years. And I ended up just naturally falling in with with those kind of cases. Um, and can I ask you, you use the term human rights lawyer. And it's funny because in this part of Ireland, it's almost a term we never use. And I suppose part of that reason, the reason for that is that our fundamental rights are protected by the Constitution. But I think I'm right in saying that in the UK and Northern Ireland, there was a fundamental change with the Human Rights Act 1998, where suddenly there was a kind of there was a kind of baseline of human rights because it's cited in almost every relevant decision in coming from the, from the UK courts. So, just to the extent that human rights is almost sort of an, an export industry in the UK, I mean, you hear human rights lawyers kind of working in places like Hong Kong and that kind of thing. Are you aware of that kind of distinction? I mean, how, how, what's a human rights lawyer? There's two things. Um, when the Human Rights Act uh, came into force, it is what's known now widely within the UK as a constitutional statute. Sure. Um, whilst obviously the, the UK uh, and the North don't have a written constitution, there are certain statutes that take primacy over other legislation, the Northern Ireland Act being one, the Human Rights Act being another. And its significance for that reason has been elevated. Um, and I think unfortunately, um, in particular, when we look at the, the, no- the North and Northern Ireland, what happened what many people sometimes miss is that when we have won a situation where we have such a troubled past, for example, where there has been human rights uh, breaches, the Human Rights Act has been a, a tool, it's been a weapon for good for people who want to seek truth and justice and redress via the courts. But also we have a situation where, unfortunately, um, by the very nature of power sharing instalment, um, where at times it is being dysfunctional with a, with a capital D, the problem that we have is that when the government doesn't step in, the courts have to step into the vacuum. and. Sure situations that may seem in many ways in this part of the world bizarre issues such as for example abortion rights you know down here it was debated referendum on we go unfortunately in in the north it went on for years in Stormont and every time there was a potential vote on it there would be a what's known as a petition of concern which would stop the legislation being passed and then years were passed and what ultimately happened was court proceedings using the Human Rights Act the whole way to the Supreme Court and then we eventually see legislative intervention and that, unfortunately, isn't a, a unique situation. We've seen it, for example, in hu- Human rights here, and just to pick up on Mark's point, I mean, human rights, when I think of it down here, it's generally law relating to asylum and applicants coming into the country and citizenship entitlements, etc. That's generally what we view down in the South here as human rights. And that doesn't seem to feature as part of your work. It's more kind of redress, as you say, talking about kind of the legacy of the difficult period that the troubles were. Is that, it's not, you're not doing that sort of, you know, asylum work, citizenship, that sort of stuff that we associate with human rights down here. Well, the Human Rights Act obviously has been used um, in immigration and asylum work, but but it's, it's used more broadly than that. You know, for example, a situation such as um, same-sex marriage, which play, plays a part um, in recent cases about whether or not the uh, Legal Migration Act, for example, uh, is, is lawful and circumstances where, for example, sentences imposed on prisoners who are convicted of terrorist offences, can you do it retrospectively? So it's, it's used on a regular basis and we've seen it, you know, even situations such as um, if you have a same-sex couple, obviously they had to be, had to be used to recognise the marriage, but equally it was used when you have a heterosexual couple being able to recognise a civil partnership 
So it's been used in so many varieties. And I have to say, maybe in a minority, but I think it's underused in the South. And I think one of the big concepts, unfortunately, is that a weakness in the system that I think in, in the South is that there isn't the same access to justice provisions under civil legal aid that there would be in the North or in the UK. And whilst they are far from perfect, it has allowed for an increased um, amount of public law or administrative law challenges, which tend to feature the Human Rights Act, and are good for accountability. But unfortunately, again, through no fault of anybody's, they are probably more needed in the North because we have this unique situation whereby, unfortunately, the government doesn't always function in the way in which it was intended. And therefore, the Human Rights Act, public law more generally, and access to justice more generally, have played a much, much more important role than maybe they ordinarily would. Okay, and Derek, can I just ask you a question? Sorry, Mark. Just, just I'm curious and I'm fascinated by you setting up your own practice and working in this kind of very niche area. I mean, maybe you have a broader practice as well. But, but I'm curious about the title Phoenix Law. Why Phoenix Law? So when we set up um, Phoenix Law, um, the big issue at the centre of the, the idea was that we wanted to make a bespoke practice. We wanted to have this practice which would focus on human rights, do international law, but on almost a commercial-esque approach, a professional approach. Because unfortunately, sometimes when we view these concepts of human rights lawyers, we think of lawyers with holes in their shoes. We think of commercial lawyers. We think of lawyers who get chauffeur-driven in Rolls Royces out of suits. And what we wanted to do was not to get chauffeur-driven in Rolls Royces, but have this idea where... You wanted to make a living, in yeah, fairness to you. Yeah, and then we wanted to show that, you know, being a human rights lawyer wasn't a second-class agenda. We wanted to try and make it a professional uh, you know, entity that could compete with the government bodies because 90% of the time, and being a human rights lawyer, your opponent is a government. Sure. And therefore, we wanted to say that we could compete on that level. But central to that, we wanted to make it about a team. We didn't want to make it about the people who set it up. And the reason why we wanted the name Phoenix was because we wanted one word that everybody would remember. We wanted a title whereby it wasn't associated to the people. Myself, you know, Peter Corrigan, Claire McKeegan, Kieran Moyna, people who set it up, it wasn't about us. It was about the, the brand. It was about the practice. It was about the team. And long after we go, we hope that the brand will still be there or the team will still be there because it's about the team. So the reason why we... And is it politically neutral? That that was the thought that came to me. Maybe that wasn't part of your thinking at all, was it? <laughs> we, we always heard this um, this great thing after. We thought at the time this word was was fantastic because it was politically neutral, down the middle, no questions. And it was one word that everybody would remember. And it had this great kind of symbolic, you know, phoenix bird, the bird that rises from the ashes and the great sense of injustice that you raise from the ashes and the David versus Goliath. We always remember in the weeks after it, we had two very interesting comments. One person said, oh, Phoenix, is that not, is that not got Republican connotations? And somebody else says, oh, Phoenix, is that not the word that they used to use for special brands? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've had it both ways now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> sure, it's politically neutral and it can be interpreted anyway, but it's generally about the brand, about independence. It's about uh, who, who the team is. It's not about the people. Because we mm-hmm. find that too often solicitor firms are named after people. The reality is this isn't about us. It's not about me. It's about the team and it's about all of us together. So, you talked about cases against the government and what we're really here to discuss is the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy Act 2023. And this is a, an act that passed the Westminster Parliament, which effectively says, right, from here on in, we are not going to allow inquests, we're not going to have prosecutions in relation to troubles-related incidents. And the Irish government has brought a case to Strasbourg in relation to this what what's your view of this act? This act is, you know, the simplest way of describing it. It's a forced marriage. You know, as I've opened about the political situation in Northern Ireland is unique. When all the political parties agree on something, you know it is fundamentally wrong. The reality is that um, this has a uniform rejection. It is unanimously rejected. 
by, by uh, all parties. By all parties. Right. And it is because it undermines the very basic concept of the rule of law. But many people don't appreciate what this act does at its centre. It removes any criminal prosecutions. It stops any inquests and discontinues any future inquests. It prevents anybody taking a civil action or a civil claim seeking damages. And it removes what uh, is known as the police ombudsman in the, the North, which is obviously the equivalent of GSOC. So when, when you look at that in, in its real terms, it removes access to courts. It removes any access to justice, never mind the immunity concept whereby it is actually going to give people who've committed heinous crimes uh, an amnesty and protection. And is this going to affect many of the cases that your firm is working with on an ongoing basis? Absolutely. It, it, this act impacts every single, almost every single legacy case. You know, at the minute, at this minute in time, we act in over 500 uh, cases in which this is going to directly apply to. And that varies from families who are in the middle of an inquest process who hope that it will conclude by May, otherwise it will fall off the cliff and will be stopped, to people who have issued civil claims for damages as a result of torture or as a result of their loved one being killed. Uh, so it applies to all of those people. And indeed, it applies to people who, for example, files are out with the Public Prosecution Service at the minute for decisions on, for example, murder and serious crimes. It affects all of those people. Am I right in thinking, Dara, that the motivation for this piece of legislation came from a Tory government that effectively was trying to safeguard British soldiers, basically, and protect them from future prosecutions? Absolutely. And it's clear that uh, those who have the most to lose are the ones who are perpetrating the very act. And the reality is that um, on, a, on any independent analysis of the debates and the underpinning Hansard material, it is clear as night meets day that the purpose of this act was to do away with any future prosecutions. And the reason for that is, as we've seen, that the court system has worked. For large part, it has worked. It is an imperfect system, but it has worked. We have seen people facing trials and we've seen people facing justice. In a recent time, we've seen the uh, murder of Ed Maganespe. Um, ultimately, the soldier was convicted of manslaughter. This, this is the, the young man who was killed crossing the border between Ochnacloy and Demivale, isn't that yes. right? Yes, and, and um, he faced trial. He was convicted of manslaughter. He didn't serve any jail, but the reality is, so far, trial, the rule of law played a part. In the same way, we've seen inquests, Bala Murphy, uh, again, where we say, where being involved, we've seen the families get access to justice and a verdict reached. Equally, we've seen prosecutions of paramilitary and people who are convicted of terrorist offences over many years. And the purpose and the point behind all of that is, regardless of what your political persuasion is, the rule of law applies equally to all, and it has applied equally to all. In recent times, we have seen that it works. Whilst it is imperfect, it works. And now we have in a situation whereby an act is imposed, which we wouldn't see in Hong Kong or Russia, where a government, something like you would see in a dictatorship, where it tries to impose the erosion of the rule of law the erosion of access to courts for those people. And yet, to take the opposite, the other side, in the 1920s, something not dissimilar happened in this part of Ireland, where after a brutal war of independence and an extremely unpleasant civil war, they effectively said, look, we'll put the past behind us and we're going to build a new state. And after 25, 30 years of troubles, uh, they, there are clearly a lot of people who will never face justice. Is there not an argument for saying, look, Let's just bury the past. Let's try and build on the future. I mean, is there, is, there, is there an argument for that? There is an argument, but the reality is who's making the argument? It's, it's none of the people who are involved or the people who live in the, on, the, on the very part of the world where this occurred. The reality is this isn't supported by anybody. And in fact, it's not even supported by veterans based in Northern Ireland. The only people this is supported by is veterans based 
in England. So we don't see anybody putting forward this argument. And, and, and crucial to all of this, is when we're talking about amnesties and, and, and truth and reconciliation processes such as that, this was debated prior to the Good Friday Agreement. No agreement could be reached on drawn sure. line. So it was not part of the Good Friday Agreement. So there was a process and this was not signed up to. So therefore what is now happening is, is a tantamount intervention to try and force upon the very people this applies to a position which nobody supports. And when we look at it, reality is when we look at the, the, the South African model, for example, it's very, very simple, as I made clear at the time. When you have truth and reconciliation, when you have amnesties, that is at the will of the people. It's not, it shouldn't be done by a legal safeguard that's imposed upon the people. It can only be done with the consent of the people. And the reality is this has no support, doesn't have any support by anybody involved or anybody within the jurisdiction. Can I play devil's advocate here as well, Dara? I mean, I'm just occurring to me, I don't know, I might be completely on the wrong track, but something like the Savile Inquiry into the shooting of the people in Bloody Sunday in Derry in 1972. I mean, Tony Blair put that in place and it went on for about 13 or 14 years, I think, where, you know, there was in the Guildhall in Derry Mm -hmm. where evidence was heard. And, you know, a report was published. I don't think any prosecutions emerged from that at the end of it. And maybe I'm wrong in that. But, I mean, is it an awful lot of resources, etc.? And it just dredges up information. And as Mark says, maybe it's time to move on. So there, there was one prosecution that's ongoing at the minute, um, arising from Bloody Sunday. The second point is that the cost, in comparison to what is ultimately being achieved, is minimal. The reality is, you know, Bloody Sunday is the, the, the stark example that everybody references because of the cost and the length of time. But it's in a minority. We now must look at what processes have happened in recent times. The Ballamurphy inquest, a fraction of the cost, and the reality is it delivered a, a just outcome. It delivered truth and justice for those people. And let's look at both Bloody Sunday and Ballamurphy in context. If we had said, enough is enough, let's draw a line, the people of Ballamurphy and the people of Bloody Sunday would have been forever criminalised as being responsible, being armed. We now know the situation is that exactly the opposite is true, that those people were innocent of any wrongdoing, they weren't armed and they were unlawfully killed. So unfortunately, whilst from outside the box that sometimes it is easy to suggest, is there not time to draw a line? We must remember that unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, the truth has never come out because the person that holds the keys to the truth is the very person who now holds the lock on trying to put a line on the past. So what we say is that when you look at this in the context of that, you can't agree to draw a line in circumstances in which there is so much left to be done. And is, is there an argument for a, a mechanism? Yes, there absolutely is. Is this the mechanism? No, it's not. And can what we just look at the mechanism in the Act? Sorry, the, the, there's an independent commission for reconciliation and information recovery. How is that supposed to work? So that's set up by, obviously, the Act itself. It's uh, going to be chaired by Sir Declan Morgan, the former Lord Chief Justice. Now, the purpose of the, or the, the working of the ICRIR obviously hasn't come into complete uh, force yet, so we don't actually know. What the Act says is very limited. Um, so in many ways, what the ICRIR can actually do is on an unknown quantity. Now, what it can do from the Act, we say, um, what, is, what is clear is it can't compel people to give evidence. It can't hold can't. hearings. No. It can compel people to turn up to answer questions. Uh, it can't compel people to a t- uh, hearing. It can't have public hearings and it can't deal with public interest immunity or what's called closed material procedures, which maybe a novel concept in many ways in this jurisdiction, however, a very unfortunately frequent concept in the North whereby we have to have procedures where you have a special advocate appointed to try and get material disclosed because there's been a claim of national security. But more concerning than all of that is it then has this uh, power whereby if the person turns up and tells the truth, they will be given an immunity from any further prosecution. And that's where 
there's a huge bite here. That's where there's a big part of the problem because the reality is the victim's family has no role in that process. Okay. So whether or not that person can be challenged on their account, whether or not that person is, for example, that person could turn up and say, here's the truth. I don't regret a single minute of it. In fact, I stand over it. I think it was completely right to murder that person. They've got immunity. Right. There's no element of reconciliation involved. But even if they don't turn up, do they not effectively have immunity under the Act? I mean, can they still be prosecuted if they don't turn up to, to the commission? Well, this is the problem. There, there can't be any further prosecutions. However, to get immunity in its, in its star terms, you have to engage with the ICRR. Okay. And just in, can I, just remind me, that there's the issue of what they call the OTR letters, where various members of the provision IRA were effectively told, you can come back to Northern Ireland because we we're not going to prosecute you. Is that in the mix here? I mean, th those people can't be prosecuted now, can they? So, so the OTRs is a bit of a red herring. Right. The, OTR does, the OTRs do not prevent prosecution. In fact, many people under the OTRs have been prosecuted. Now, in one example, in the, the Downey case, um, he was acquitted on the basis of an abusive process, and many people have then understood that to be tantamount to immunity. Not true. In fact, Mr. Downey has been prosecuted this very minute in time for a different offence right. in the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland as right. opposed to England. And indeed, there's many other people who have faced trial who have or who have claimed to have an OTR letter. So it doesn't in any way prevent prosecution. But unfortunately, it is, again, one of these uh, misconceptions that are bandied about by the British government in trying to articulate and advocate their position. What about the difficulty arising from the Good Friday Agreement and the fact that central to that was the release of prisoners? So people who are serving very serious jail terms. I mean, we here have featured uh, Patrick McGee, for example, who was the Brighton bomber who was released under that. And the, and the British government tried to say that he was exempt from the release mechanisms that were under the Good Friday Agreement. But when you have a scenario when people who were actively involved in the troubles on both sides were released and allowed to go out and join civil society again, does that not cause a problem then for people who are now prosecuted after that, who might relate to events and incidents that happened prior to 1998 when the Good Friday Agreement came in? You no, know, because there's, there's a distinction and the first distinction is that that was agreed. The Good Friday Agreement it was agreed that prisoners would be released. That was part of the agreement. Unfortunately, the rights and wrongs that cannot be looked behind because that is what all of the parties signed up to for peace in, sure. in, in, in the north of Ireland. On the other side of that, what does not feature in the Good Friday Agreement is an amnesty for going forward for any further prosecutions. And unfortunately, when you look at the balance of prosecutions pre the Good Friday Agreement and post it is no surprise that large part of the prosecutions pre-Good Friday Agreement were paramilitary or terrorism related. There is no, a very limited, sorry, very, very limited number of prosecutions of soldiers. Now, this is where this debate has become, in many ways, hyperventilated by the veterans because the problem is nobody was prosecuted back then. Whereas when the fresh evidence comes to light now, in recent times, a variety of different mechanisms, historical inquiries team by the PSNA, through QR archives, the documents come into light, or inquests, we have seen prosecutions of soldiers. And that was where the shift had changed. There then became a fair procedure whereby everybody was fair game for prosecution. If the evidence came to light, and as we know from the European Convention of Human Rights, for example, large part of the time, the obligation to investigate will only kick in where fresh evidence comes to light. Sure. So this isn't just a situation whereby people who are being prosecuted now should have been prosecuted at the time. It ordinarily is because fresh evidence comes to light. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a little bit about the Irish government's case against the UK and the ECHR? Have you an involvement in that case? Yes, so I've been instructed by um, Amnesty International to formally intervene in the proceedings. Okay. 
And so th- th- it, is it an Article 2 case or what, what, what's the fundamental thrust of the, the, the case? I think the fundamental thrust is Article 2, um, which is obviously the right to life. However, as I understand it, um, they also played Article 3 and they also played Article 6. And for our non-human rights <laughs> listeners, what are those so, two, two so articles? Article 3 is uh, to be free from inhumane treatment and torture. Article 6 is the right to a fair trial. They also played Article 14, which is the right to be free from discrimination. And they also played Article 13, which is the uh, right to uh, access a remedy. And where is that case at the moment? It's It's been filed. Are we expecting a hearing anytime soon? It's been filed. Unfortunately, no, we don't expect a hearing anytime soon because the last Ireland versus the UK case uh, was the Hooded Men the, case, yeah. which yes. was involved. And it was revised. Yes, the Hooded Men, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think from memory, the application was lodged in 2014 and the final outcome, which wasn't favourable, was in 2018, so... But we hear a dreadful noise coming from Westminster that they want to pull out of the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, and, and kind of withdraw, you know, the UK, I suppose, and that will affect north of the border in relation to that. You, you talked about a very interesting thing. I mean, ultimately, this act was brought in. It's a political act. It was passed by Westminster. And you're saying that this consensus on all sides, which is a rare enough thing in the north, uh, let's be honest about it. But there's consensus on both sides. You know, so obviously nationalism is totally opposed to this, but unionism seems to be opposed to it as well. So, I mean, really, you know, it should be politically possible to get this removed. That's what many thought, but unfortunately, as, as it transpires, it isn't. And it's because, as we know, uh, the uh, Tory government that's in place at the minute is steadfast in maintaining their position of trying to protect veterans. We obviously know that the uh, Labour government have already signalled that if they get into power, they would repeal the act, and we'd hope that they would honour it. But you know, in many ways, we can't be surprised. This is the very same government who, in the present climate, are talking about putting asylum seekers on planes to Rwanda, and when they're told that that's not compliant with the Human Rights Convention or indeed international law, their response is, "Well, let's try and remove the the right to have to listen to a European court." So I think anybody should be surprised. You know, this Tory government is the enemies of of, of human rights, broad stroke. Just go back to the ECHR. Will you talk to us about the Hooded Man case? Where is that? This is the most fascinating case. Will you, will you, will you tell us a little bit about that, Dara? So, so uh, in um, about 2014, fresh evidence came to light. So the backstory is Ireland versus the UK, 1970s. As many would might be shocked, this isn't the first time uh, that Ireland have taken a case against the UK. They did it in the 1970s, whereby 14 men were taken, they were subject to five techniques. Um, they were hooded, they were placed against a wall, for prolonged periods of time, they were uh, limited in sleep. They were sleep deprived. They were deprived of food and water. And they were subject to uh, what's known as white noise, which is like a loud hissing noise. Those five techniques were pl- applied for hours on end simultaneously. The impact that that has, it, it effectively breaks you down. You become disorientated. And the uh, outworking is that the British government at the time thought this was an idea to try and somehow break people down to get them to confess to um, heinous crimes. And as, the, as we now know from the various research that's done the five techniques, that is fundamentally untrue. And many people will actually tell mistruths just to make the treatment end. Sure. So then um, in the 1970s, Ireland brought the case to Europe saying that this was torture. At the time, the European Commission, as it was then, investigated and found that it was indeed torture. The case was then referred to the European Court of Human Rights as the procedure worked at that stage. It was almost, the commission was almost like a permission stage. And the European Court found that it was a breach of Article 3 for the protection of inhumane and degrading treatment, but that it didn't amount to torture because the, the treatment itself didn't have long-lasting consequences. Fast forward to 2014, 
uh, fresh information comes to light that showed that at the very time the British government was arguing this before the European Court, they were receiving medical advice in which the, the doctor at the time, Dr. Lee, was making it clear that, in fact, in one instance, the, the, the patient was lucky he didn't die whilst he was examining him. That's how stark the notes are. Uh, and in addition to that, that this treatment wasn't just authorised by military or police, it was authorised right at the top, right at the top, and we're talking Prime Minister level. RTE collated all of the information. Uh, Rita O'Reilly published a, a documentary entitled The Torture Files, which put all of this information together and made it clear that the European Court had been misled. We petitioned the Irish government that they should reopen the case, they should apply under Rule 80 to reopen the case. Now, in that, in and itself, was a very rare position, whereby it is, there are a very finite number of cases which are actually reopened. The Irish government initially um, refused to reopen the case, and we brought a judicial review against them in Dublin, seeking to compel them to bring the case back to the European Court. It was ultimately conceded, and they confirmed that they were going to bring the case back. And in 2018, the European Court confirmed on a split decision that um, they couldn't be sure the impact that the information would have had on the court in the first instance because they couldn't be sure due to the passage of time. And of, of note is that uh, there was a dissenting judge. Many will now know this the, at the time uh, was a, a minority of one, but now is the president, uh, Schieffer O'Leary. Okay, okay. Uh, well, who, yeah. who, 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 um, Dubliner, yes, yep. of course. Um, so... Mm at the time was in a minority and dissented through their human rights values and now the president. So, uh, And at the very same time, the, the UK judge was Lord Reid, who's now the president of one of the most conservative Supreme Courts in recent times in the UK, who was sitting as the uh, ad hoc uh, UK judge. So, um, Wow, what a brilliant narrative. Thank you, thank you Dara, for explaining that. Will you tell us where, just where are they at now? Where are the hooded men at now? So we then, the case then proceeded before the London Supreme Court, where we were successful. And unfortunately, in a very sad set of circumstances, my clients were putting forward all they wanted was an apology. We didn't want anything else. And in the latter part of last year, one of the hooded men, a guy called Joe Clark, became um, terminally ill and effectively on his deathbed, and I don't say that lightly, we got confirmation that uh, the chief constable would apologise and would draw a line. And the apology was deli- hand-delivered the day before he passed away. And his wife still talks about the monumental moment that she has on her phone where, in fact, his last words were brilliant, brilliant, as he tapped the apology on his chest and he never spoke after that. And that just tells you all you need to know about the importance of recognition for people. The most important thing in his life to him was that he wanted to be recognised, he wanted to be apologised for what happened, yeah. and that's it. Wow. So the apology was last year. I think we, we've reached the stage where we have to ask you our, our final question, which is, do you have a book or a film you'd like to recommend to our listeners? I have to recommend uh, Mark Tottenham and the Expert Witness Procedure. <laughs> <laughs> which you know by heart at this stage. <laughs> well, I think, um, given the listeners, I'd probably recommend two. Um, the first one is, Are You With Me? It's about a legendary human rights lawyer called Kevin Boyle, who was actually a lecturer in Galway University, uh, originally from Newry, and I have to say a hero of mine. Uh, and now the library in uh, NUA Go is actually named after him. I definitely recommend that. Are, are, are you with me? Is it is it a memoir or? A... Well, it's a memoir written after his death, but okay. it's done based on his writings that he left in okay. Galway. So it's an absolute fascinating read. And for anybody else who's interested in human rights, um, Spider Woman by Brenda Hale, the former president of the UK okay. Supreme Court, is a fascinating read about her travel through the judiciary in particular as a minority, a woman who rose to the top and tried to ensure that for an equal treatment for everyone. Named after her famous spider brooch, is that right? That's it. Absolutely. Darren Mackin, thank you very much for joining us here in the Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week.
So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to human rights solicitor Dara Macken for talking to us about the incredible work he does representing people who come on the wrong side of human rights. I could have listened to that man all night. It was it's really interesting. And I mean, it's it's just, it's such a different type of law than yes. most of us encounter in the South because obviously the it Northern Ireland is just, Ireland's just so it, important. completely different issues. So rising. important, yeah. you know, human rights. And it's just, it was just, it was just brilliant. And well done to Dara. What a great guest. And I'd also like to thank our producer, Cunnell O'Moran, for his help in putting together this podcast this evening. And also to the great Lee Brennan, who recorded this podcast and just does such a wonderful job for us every week. Lee, we're very grateful and we want you to know that. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Totten. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.